My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Don't overcomplicate things. At the end of the day, you go to work, you earn the money, respect your money by looking after it. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're back with Kate Brown, Managing Editor of Finder, Australia's largest and most visited comparison site. We'll learn exactly how she began her property investing journey, the strategies and the hot tips on how to manage your money. You'll also hear how to save money simply by using an app on your phone and much, much more. Brown delves into her property investment journey with us starting with the first property she purchased. This is before I was working at the Opera House. I was renting, you know, renting a place with a friend in the inner west. I'd been single forever. I was pretty happy being single, floating along. And then my flatmate and good friend, he said, look, I'm going to move to London. I'm like, oh, and then I just thought, oh, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. But, I, you know, classic 20-something, you know, I was just like, oh, whatever. And then my dad said, oh, mum and I want to have dinner with you, which was really unusual. Like, my mum was quite fairly hands-on parent, but my dad wasn't so much. I thought, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so what I went out for dinner coming? with them, single, not earning a lot of money. I was like, woo, like, free dinner. Went had dinner with them and then my dad is like, kind of was like, what are you doing with your life? Like, you know, what are you going to do in the immediate future, which is your flatmates just moved out? Like, what are you doing? I think I was, I think I'd left Optus too and I was between jobs then and I was, I was just very late, didn't know what I was doing with my life. And I was like, oh. And then he said, look, I, you know, your mother and I are a bit worried about you. I think you should try and save some money with a mind to possibly buying either somewhere to live or something to invest in and I was like oh okay and then he was like look uh, and I was very very fortunate my parents by this stage were living in Leichhardt in you know the inner west so I was the last youngest child so um, they had a nice house in Leichhardt with a spare room and dad was like why don't you come and live at home for a year instead of continuing to rent and pay the rent but I'll sock it away in an account that you can't touch. Hey, Dad, that's a great idea. <laughs> that is so generous. And actually, when I look back again, 
having your you know adult child move back in isn't a walk in the park either. I've got that perspective now. I'm a parent, so it was actually a very very generous thing to do, and so I did. I only lasted six months in their house. I can understand this happens. I've done it before. It's not easy living with the parents again. <laughs> Once you have that freedom, it's like I don't want to ever go back. It was hard, and I think my mum found it really hard too. Like I, you know, I again with that kind of selfishness you have when you're young. It's like oh, she must love having me here, and I think my mum was just like oh, you know, because I actually did revert to a bit of a child, even though I was in my you know late twenties. I wasn't really behaving very well. I just went back to my child me, which I think we do around our parents sometimes. So we all agreed after six months that would come to an end. And around then a good friend of mine had said, hey, like we're looking for a new flatmate in our share house. And my mum was quite cross because I think, and my dad, they were like, well, clearly you'll stop saving. But I didn't. I kept saving, albeit not quite at the rate I was when I was socking away what I would have spent in rent and almost to go to them, hey, you know, I went overseas with a friend for six weeks and, you know, they were like, oh, great. You know, and I think they were like, she spent all the money. But I didn't. And I set up an automatic transfer, which is the greatest thing to do in the world. You know, and it seems so simple now. But at the time I was like, oh, God, I'm not even noticing that money. By then I'd started working at the Opera House and that money was just going into a high interest savings account. It took me probably a year longer than my parents expected. But after two and a half years, I had enough money for a deposit on a very, very small apartment. That's amazing. Yeah. And what I realized is sometimes you hear about saving or budgeting and you think, oh, I'm going to have to like, I don't know, drink tap water and never have a coffee or go out ever again. Eat rice every day. Um, (laughs) Can of beans. (laughs) Yeah, can of beans. And it doesn't have to be like that. Obviously, you'll save more money if you do that, but you can still save money and a lot of it's a mindset. And so for me, like I said, just the automatic debit from my pay, man, I never saw it. And I just adjusted. And I had a bloody good time living in that other share house with my other friends. I had a great time. Actually, it didn't hurt that two of them were students. So I was working and they were sort of students. So we did, you know, we partied a lot at home. (laughs) So it was accidental kind of savings, I guess, in that way too. But I did, I saved enough. And by then, mum and dad were really out of the picture, like not in a bad way, but I'd kind of gone, I've got this. And so I started looking for, you know, a very small apartment. I had enough for a 2 or 20% deposit, was hoping for 10 and started looking at places in the inner west. At that stage, sort of Marrickville was still pretty affordable. Um, it wasn't quite the way it looked these days. Um, it's changed a lot. Yeah, both my brothers lived in Marrickville and they both had apartments uh, over there. And so one of my brothers took me to look at a few places and it didn't go well. Um, I remember looking at one and coming out and crying because I said, (laughs) I'd be too scared to live here. It was pretty rough. It was like pretty rough but and I remember my brother going but it's such a good price you know and I'm like oh and I was like I can't do that I looked in other suburbs it was a lot of you know I was astonished by how many people were looking in that price range too so you'd have to queue up to like look at a one-bedroom apartment it was really depressing and I looked for quite a long time but I did have one of those magical moments so I'd looked and looked and looked and I was just thinking oh and then I started thinking well I could buy something and I don't have to live in it you know, suddenly I went, oh, I could actually, you know, I guess it's rent vesting. I just didn't realize it was rent vesting uh, because I was really enjoying living with my friends and I really liked living in Leichhardt and I couldn't afford to stay in Leichhardt and, you know, like real dodgy end of Marrickville on my own. I was like, oh, it's not really, you know, single, not really doing it for me. 
that really liberated my mindset. And then I remember sitting with my other brother in the pub one day in Marrickville and I pointed across the road because his apartment block was across the road and I said, oh, it's just I'm, I'm so done looking at places. I'd looked at about 30 places by then. I was getting really discouraged and I waved my hand in the direction of his apartment block and said, I just want something like that. And unbelievably, he said, oh, my girlfriend's friend has a really small apartment in there and she's looking to sell privately. And I was like, hang on a minute, what? And so he introduced me to her. I bought my first place privately. That is an amazing story. You don't hear that very often. It was good in the sense that we were able to kind of come to an arrangement without real estate investor, uh, real estate agents and all the, dare I say it, bullshit you get. It was difficult because I had a lot of trouble getting a loan. Banks don't like like lending to single women (laughs) and particularly when they work in the arts and weren't earning a great salary, an okay salary, like enough to cover it. But I, and also they didn't like the size of the apartment. It was not a studio, but it was just under 50 square metres, even though it was perfectly, and so suddenly I was getting no's all round. So that was another massive hurdle. Uh, and I did use a mortgage broker who was actually really great and they finally found someone that would lend, but I had to pay a 20% deposit. Ouch. And I guess the other thing about selling privately is just before we were about to do the deal, the woman I was buying it from got cold feet. <laughs> And she called me and asked for an extra 30 grand. What did you do in that circumstance? It was funny because she called me and I was at work. And for me, I was doing all this stuff I'd never done before. So I was in that very kind of heightened state where I'm like dealing with mortgage brokers, dealing with conveyances. I didn't even know what a conveyance was. Getting the money ready, you know, I was like, wow, I was so into it and I was so excited. And she called me at work and someone must have got in her ear and gone, oh, you know, you could get more. And she started saying, I think I'm going to auction it. And I was like, mate. It's like a tiny one-bedroom apartment. And particularly this is, you know, this is like 15 years ago. People weren't doing that in Marrickville. Like you weren't having auction and she would have lost like, you know. And and so I actually called her bluff, but it was sort of unintentional. I basically just said to her, well, I don't have any more money. So, (laughs) and I was like, I said, I don't have any more money down the back of the couch. Like, so... That's a real shame because I love it and I've I've got the money ready to go. I said, yeah, take it or leave it. If you think you can get more, I'm really, really sad, but that's that. And we left it and I was so upset. And she called me back two hours later and she said, I've changed my mind. (laughs) So it was interesting because it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't really deliberate, but it was actually, I did call her bluff, but truly because I, I was already extended. I think she just had a moment of madness herself, but it was like, come on, seriously, we're not paying any real estate agent fees. We're not paying, you know, money you'd pay for an auction. You know me, you know, I've got the money. And a couple of days later, we exchanged the keys in the pub that I'd been sitting in with my brother when I've been looking across the road. So that was awesome. After that memorable moment of buying her first property, she shares if she has purchased more since then. So after I bought my property, I lived in it for a little while and then I decided I didn't want to live in it. So I moved back to my share house. Um, Actually, I then got to be a landlord, which was really interesting again. And I worked with a really nice local agent um, to find my great tenants. And I think I like to think I was a pretty good landlord. And they all looked after my place beautifully. Later on, I was able to help out a friend who was saving for his own place. So he moved into my place and in return for, you know, small cut in the rent, he kind of 
offered to look after things and we had an arrangement which was awesome and also I was able to help him buy his own place and I was happily still living in my share house so really again my first property was an investment it really was set and forget you know the rent covered the mortgage repayments you know I had a few upsets with you know water heater blowing up or the occasional you know extraordinary strata fee but I had it covered and it really was set and forget so I guess that's like really important thing to say to people it's the buying is hard but often you you know so it sat there ticking away I met my partner he also had his own place again an apartment but in Bondi and when we got really serious and we wanted to start a family you know we both realized we weren't millionaires and we couldn't stay in Bondi um and he was in a one-bedroom apartment so we found a house in Leichhardt and the market had taken a bit of a dive at that point this is sort of mid-2000s I'd always thought Leichhardt would be out of our ballpark financially I thought we'd probably look in Marrickville or Chill. Again, you know, so much of buying property is circumstantial. We saw this house we live in now because we we're driving past. I knew the street. I'd always loved the street. And I used to look at this, the house I own now and go, oh, it's such a cute little house. And it was for sale. It was for auction. I said to my partner, there's no way we can afford this. It's Leichhardt. This is one of the nicest streets. And my husband's far more optimistic than me. He goes, I'm just going to ring up and find out and I was like don't bother and he's like no no I'm going to and this is the story of our relationship he's definitely more of a glass half full guy he called and they said the it was passed in an auction and they said the owners are getting divorced it's very acrimonious and they want to sell fast and it was the first place we looked at and again my dad was really interesting my dad's great with sort of property stuff I got my mum and dad to come over and have a look at it and my dad said make an offer And my mum said, but it's the first place I've looked at. And my dad said, well, why would you want to keep looking? And then my mum's like, that's insane. And I'm like, maybe we should look at other places. And my dad said, do you really want to be looking for the next year and talking about how that first place? So I do take my hat off to my dad. He's he's carefully spontaneous. And um, so we were able to sell the two properties we had in Bondi and Marrickville to buy the house, which was great because four months later I was pregnant. So... (laughs) And we literally bought a house with a white picket fence. So people were highly amused. I'd gone from being very single to very loved up and then pregnant within sort of two years. So that was, and owning a house. So that was pretty wild. I'd love to invest more in property. I guess what we have done as an investment with our house is we did do a significant renovation two years ago and partly from necessity, but also strategically. So the house had three bedrooms, but a very small living area and a very small bathroom. And the classic Victorian home, the front was really solid, but the back was a bunch of rough and tumble extensions that were all falling to bits. We reborrowed to fund a major renovation to turn the house into four bedrooms, two bathrooms, and a much larger living area. And it's very beautiful now and also rock solid. So the reason I say strategic is we really squeeze that fourth bedroom in because I talked to a lot of real estate agents about what people were looking for in the market if we were to sell. And the one thing that's in shortage around the Leichhardt inner west area is four bedroom houses. There's a lot of three bedrooms. They're very small rooms. The girls' rooms, my children's rooms are fairly small, but I think, and talking to a lot of agents was very instructive. Um, You know, agents love looking at your house, even if you're not going to sell in areas where there's interest. And I learned a lot from them. And actually, a lot of them were very honest. Like two of them, we were looking at potentially selling and buying something else rather than renovating. And two of them just said, don't sell. You won't do better than this in terms of location, which I thought was really honest. And but a lot of them said, "Look, people are looking for the fourth bedroom because that's the goal. Like, if people have three kids, or they want to study, or they just want another space, 
that's the golden ticket. We have a friend that actually designed the house for us. We paid her, but it was great to work with someone that knew us really well. But that's been very strategic. So while I do see us staying here for quite some time, I wanted to build something that would be very appealing to the market if we needed to sell. Brown's strategy for investing money back into her own place of residence can effectively help her avoid paying more in the future. It's interesting when we bought the house, my husband's accountant was like, oh, why don't you just stay in the Bondi apartment and negative gear the house? And, I, and that's where I think sometimes financial advice and life collide. And I looked at him and said, but I want to live in, I bought the house so I could live in it. And also, I, I mean, he didn't know this, we were planning to have children. So I was like, oh, am I having children in a one bedroom of Bondi apartment? But, you know, sometimes investing can be your own home, like you said, for equity. Obviously, the property market will be interesting to see what happens going forward. But I think the optimistic side of me is in those areas where there's demand and there's always going to be demand in cities like Sydney and Melbourne and all the big capital cities. If you have a suburb that has good public transport, good schools, good access to the city, for example, but a nice kind of lifestyle, while we might see some drops, I think it should all even out if it's if, if we're looking for a long-term play. I'm not looking to turn it over in a week. For us, that's really where we did invest. And like I said, we needed to. Like, you know, my girls are going to be teenagers soon and they're definitely going to need a bathroom. Um, so in that sense, it was a necessity. And also we, we were sort of bursting at the seams. But yeah, we were strategic. Aesthetically, I battled with our architect because she was like, you'd have three really nice bedrooms, you know, or she wanted to make that fourth bedroom an open space. And I was like, no, I want a door. (laughs) I need a door and a window in there. And look, we do use it as, you know, it's a great guest room. It means my daughters can have their own room. But I I was really bullish on the four four bedrooms and the two bathrooms because I knew from looking at the market, that's what was in short supply. Coming up after the break, we hear about how Kate Brown learned to be patient when it comes to investing in property. 10 years seems a really long time, but like you said, you know, you could buy something in 10 years, you could have made, it could be worth a lot more than what you pay for it and you'll be like, I'm really glad I did that, but you're not going to get that win in two years. The kind of mindset she has adopted to help her achieve success. I was very lazy <laughs> when I was younger. I've had to kick myself up the ass and I've learned that, you know, you got to show up and you got to do the best job you can do. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Brown delves into a property investing strategy that can not only help other investors manage their money but also help her two daughters in the future. It's terrifying and we joke that the kids will probably be living with us forever. <laughs> that's why you have a fourth bedroom. <laughs> Maybe I'll be moving out. It's going to be super hard. I mean, that's the thing about real estate prices and I feel, you know, we probably still paid more than we should have but I feel like when we did buy in the mid-2000s, it was before things got yeah, I think the prices were crazy. Now they're insane. And then with this added issue around job security at the moment, also like younger generations, you know, not having that stable employment, like a lot of contract work, it can be hard. I think just in terms of investing, often just going back to basics. So, you know, things like just look at optimizing your savings. Where can you save? It's a mindset, I think, for me. That was where the light bulb went off for me. Like I used to hear budget, like I said, and joke and think, oh, that means eating beans and not having coffee. It's about looking for where you can cut the fat without compromising what you want to do day to day and playing a long game. So I guess what I learned from saving that deposit is it took longer than originally expected 
but I got there. And by making some simple changes, things paid off in dividends. So for me, it was just taking that chunk of money out of my pay every week, making sure it was in the highest interest savings account I could find. Behaviorally, it was one I couldn't access easily. You know, things like that, a term deposit, you know, they're very accessible things to do. And I think also something that working at Fine has really taught me is there's loads of ways to save money that people just don't. So you know, comparing and saving your energy providers. We've got research that shows you can save from $400 to $1,000 a year just by swapping energy suppliers. I mean, that's a couple of phone calls and filling out a form. That's not bad work. You know, super funds. Even if you have a home loan, like, you know, looking to get a new home loan, interest rates are historically low. But even the ACCC put out a report recently saying, less people are shopping around and swapping out their home loans than they expected. And people are losing potentially $5,000 a year. Yeah, in terms of interest. So behaviorally, I think, you know, often we have blind spots. And I think sometimes we over-engineer this stuff. And what I've learned from working at Finder, I used to be a bit frightened of money, thinking, oh, it's very complex. A lot of this stuff isn't complex. We use complex language. Banks and financial institutions possibly deliberately use very complicated language. A lot of it is actually pretty basic. And I look at someone like the Barefoot Investor who gives, you know, his book's been so successful because he literally tells you what to do. That information's already there, but it's about... I'm going to tell you what to do and you can trust me. And through that, he's been phenomenally successful. And I guess I'd encourage any investor, whether they're saving so they can invest, there's never been more information available. Where we see the disconnect is people, they know it, but they don't do it. So you need to think about what are the things that are stopping me from actually doing that? What are the things from stopping me from today getting a better deal on my health insurance or my energy provider or optimizing my savings? What are the things that I could do? You know, can I make a list of things that I'm going to do in the next three months? You know, don't overcomplicate things. At the end of the day, like like I said before, like you go to work, you earn the money, respect your money by looking after it. And if you don't know your money intimately, you can't grow it or do anything with it. So the first step is not to be an ostrich. (laughs) I always joke about ostriches and eagles and I was definitely an ostrich for a long time um, until my dad sort of pulled my head out of the sand. It was like, what the hell are you doing? Um, And I think for me, like, you know, I was definitely not naturally attuned to thinking like that. And even I found it very interesting and really challenging. And I felt a great sense of achievement too. So I think, you know, if you are looking to invest, educate yourself, you know, and now with online and with apps, there's so many ways you can do that. So find out what suits you as well. You know, if it's as simple as naming an account, you want to put savings in naming it after the thing you want. Um, You know, there's lots of, there's a lot of psychology that comes into play. And I don't think in the financial space, we always talk about that. And I'm really fascinated by consumer psychology. It's like, we know it, but we don't do it. So you've really got to really have a long, hard look at yourself and think, what are the things that are stopping me? And just start with one. You don't have to do everything straight away. It's a long game and property is a long game, a very long game. You mentioned a point about superannuation. I actually wouldn't mind touching a little bit about that because that's a very, very interesting topic. How can people actually maximize that because the challenge is there's so many different funds out there, there's so many different options and it can be a a big, big forest of information that people just throw out at you. How have you been able to unbunk that for the actual investor or consumer out there? A bit of a plug for Finder, we compare superannuation funds so you can look at who's charging the highest, you know, who's paying the best returns. Also, um, another really key thing, I think particularly 
for you know younger generations and myself, we really care about where our money's being invested. So you know, uh, I spoke to Future Super recently, who are fascinating. They only invest in you know ethical and sustainable products and markets, and they were saying the big connect for their customers to be really engaged with their super is actually realizing that you know it's your money even now, even though you can't get to it. It's your money and it's being invested somewhere. And I thought that was a real light bulb moment for me. So you that's power. So how you want to use that power, whether it's you want to use that power to make sure your money is going into funding great things. If it's about optimizing your own super, which you can do as well, um, you know, look at those fees, look at who's paying out the best returns, look at the mix of what they're investing. Again, all this stuff's available online now. There's really no excuse for not doing it. It can seem overwhelming, but again, a lot of super products or super funds, and including Finder who compares them, can actually take your information and make suggestions about what would be most suitable for you. Again, leaning back on psychology, it's very hard to think about yourself in the future. A lot of people I ask about this question, five, ten years, what are you plans to do that? They're like, I don't know. It's too far away. I'm only looking for the now or even the next six months. I'm the same. Now I'm, you know, I'm in my 40s. I'm looking. That's not as far away. Human beings, I work quite closely with a consumer psychologist and he said human beings don't like thinking about the future. We're not wired up to think like that. Um, Human beings aren't wired up to think about their future selves. That's not how our brains work. (laughs) In defense to all of us, it can be tricky. But gee, it pays off to do it quite literally. I used to say super was boring as well. Super is really interesting and I'm really for women. Women retire with half the super that men do currently in Australia and women over 55 are the fastest growing homeless group in Australia. So for the women out there uh, in particular, you need to keep an eye on your, like the reason that is for is a lot of, you know, a lot of structural inequality around parenting and unpaid leave and stuff like that. Think of it like that. Think about where you're going to be at retirement age and really make that investment. Now, again, it can, I wouldn't say set and forget, but it is something if you take a bit of care on it once a year, you're going to really reap some benefits long term. And yes, it's not sexy and it's not next year. But it's super important and it is an investment and that is your money that's out there right now. So think about where it's going and who it's funding and if you're okay with that. She goes on to share how she values the journey of investing into property and how it all comes down to time and patience. Like me wishing I'd bought that apartment that I was frightened of all those years because it was literally half of what the apartment I ended up buying was. Uh, But yeah, hindsight's a great thing. But yeah, it's a long game. Investing in the markets, you know, I've spoken to um, analysts there and they're like, it's a long game. There's a lot of interest in investing in the markets at the moment because the economy's been so crazy. But, you know, the, the experts are like, you need to look at this as a long game. So if you see stuff going down, don't freak out you know, stuff is going to go up, it's going to go down. You've got to look at your own timeline, your own um, financial timeline. I think, as you said, very astutely, property is not a quick win. You hear stories about that. That's a media catch. That's the exception to the rule. And, you know, I don't know, as, I, as I'm getting older and now I have kids, time flies, you know. And so what like 10 years seems a really long time, but like you said, you know, you could buy something in 10 years, you could have made, it could be worth a lot more than what you pay for it. And you'll be like, I'm really glad I did that but you're not going to get that win in two years. Brown shares with us the kinds of resources that continue to inspire her on a property investing journey. At Finder, we've launched an app called the Finder app, so it's easy to remember. This is an app that's really taking advantage of some of the first early steps to open banking. So the Finder app 
is basically a portal that will allow you to access your savings accounts, your home loan, your superannuation, credit cards, all in one place. So A, you can track everything in one place, which is so, like you've got no excuse really. You know, even I sometimes think, you know, in, in past times before I was using the app, oh, I have to go and, oh, what's my super account number? Oh, my private health insurance. You know, there's still sort of barriers to entry. I think the app and, and a lot of budgeting apps as well do this, but the Finder app to me is really interesting because it's actually bringing you all that information from elsewhere to one place. It's also going to identify and alert you when you've got a potential saving to be made. So again, that really plays on. It's doing the hard work for you. So when you think, oh, you know, I mean, I don't know, people are busy, we work all day, we might have kids or whatever, you get on the couch at nine o'clock, you're not like, ooh, I'm going to check out my super. <laughs> uh, you just, you know, you're not going to do that. You're going to collapse in a heap, possibly with wine. So the app is like, the app's reminding you and it's actually giving you the pathway to do that. So I think apps like the Finder app and there are other apps out there as well that allow you to budget and things. I think they make it, they, they almost, apps in general almost gamify savings and investments and I think particularly for all of us digital natives that's really speaking to how we like to live our lives you know we all wear fitness trackers you know we like tracking everything now we track everything I think technology is a great way to do that I also know you know our generations are a bit averse getting on the phone for example so you know there's so many institutions now look, look at neobanks and fintechs you know they're all based on messaging platforms they're all living on an app in your phone I don't think our generations have that mindset where we need to go into a bank or we need to go into a new institution physically which is pretty lucky right now I've done work with say Athena Home Loans who are you know entirely app-based mortgage facility lending facility and, and they're so agile because they don't have all that legacy software. They don't have branches. They don't need all the staff. So they can cut their overheads. And I think, I think you know, I would say to people looking into this, don't be afraid of those kind of new banks, those neo banks. They're, they're backed by the same regulatory infrastructure as a big bank. Be creative in that space too. Don't just bet, like rely on the big four. Look further afield. There's a lot of exciting things happening in finance at the moment. It's sort of tapped into the younger generation because we're also used to technology. Imagining, you know, if it was back in our parents' generation, they'd probably be walking into the bank, speaking with their bank manager and saying, hmm, can you please get us a loan? That's time consuming and it doesn't give you a full picture of the market either. That's where we are really blessed. Like you can get on a site like Finder and have a good look at what's out there. You can go on multiple sites and do that. You can use an app. Like there's really no excuse for us, you know, and we can do it anywhere. Like that's the thing. We're not, you're not having to stump up and go into the city or do those things that our, our parents would have had to do. So, you know, there's a lot of ways to ensure you get a good deal. But I think the other thing that happens, and again, this is this kind of like behavior is monitoring it. So, you know, we know like people have relationships that run shorter than the time they have with the same health insurer. I think like seven years, you know, people on these swaps every seven years, people break up about every five years, which is kind of depressing. You know, you should look at your, if you have private health, look at it every year, you know, like use technology to remind you to do a check-in. Same with energy, like all this stuff. Yes, it can be a bit time consuming, but probably not as time consuming as you think. And as you pointed out, as we go forward and there's more technology on market and it really is starting to pick up pace, we've got lenders that can issue home loans. 10, 15 minutes. You can set up a savings account. You can set it up to suit you, to look the way you want it to look. We're always on our phones so that, you know, I would really encourage people to use apps. There's so many out there. Most of them are free. Finder app's free and they're really valuable. I think they're really valuable addition 
and can probably get some people over the line who may not have wanted to play in the space before. Most of them are super easy to use. So last question for you, Kate. How much of your success is due to your skill, intelligence and hard work and how much of it is because of luck? Someone told me about getting into TV that uh, and journalism. I was really lucky and I was like, yeah, right. I love that um, that saying. I don't know who I can, who, it's a famous thing. It's like the harder you work, the luckier you get. <laughs> yep, very true. Hard work. Um, some things are luck, but I think for me, and I, you know, I was like, I told in my, my story to you earlier, I was very lazy <laughs> when I was younger. I've had to kick myself up the ass and I've learned that, you know, you got to show up uh, and you got to do the best job you can do. And you've also, and I still, you know, I'm still learning this, got to deal with failure. You know, I still, when something doesn't go my way, want to just get into bed and not get out. You know, you just got to keep on plugging away. And the the glorious thing is then if things work, you know, you can go, yeah, that's on me, not because I was lucky. Women in particular often say, I was really lucky. Um, You know, they often downplay their success too, I think. So, yeah, I'd say a lot of hard work, a few dashes of good luck there, Um, big nod to my dad too for you know kicking me up the ass at the right time um and you know yeah like fortunate to have a supportive family but I think you know work hard and be consistent again it's a long game so you know I've had some weird career moves I got sacked you know dropped out of uni it's about picking yourself up and trying again it's a long game and if you know I'd look back now I go oh actually I've had a really interesting career so far and I've done a lot of interesting things but you know I was also floating around when I was 20 like, I don't know what I'm doing with myself don't give up keep pushing away and with hindsight you'll go actually that's not too bad you know you look back and you go yeah all right I've done all right Thank you to Kate Brown, our guest on this episode of Property Investory. If you'd like to hear Kate's full story, simply visit propertyinvestory.com. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.